0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name's Darcy and I work in the editorial team here at the
2: IAI. My name is Margarita and I also work at the editorial team at the IAI. And
1: today we have Narcissism and Self-Love featuring author of Think and Truth, a guide for the perplexed, Simon Blackburn. And this took place in 2023 at How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the I.I. So Margarita, tell us a bit more about
2: the talk. So this talk explores the dangers of self-love, but Simon Blackburn gives a pretty interesting take, a little controversial, where he talks about how sometimes self-love can also be a good thing.
1: Yeah, I suppose degrees of self love are good, otherwise, we would be topping ourselves left, right, and center. Yes, I suppose um, self love is important, but do you think that we're living in maybe an age that glorifies more narcissistic mm. tendencies? So it'll be interesting to see his take and his kind of defense of it.
2: Absolutely. I think he talks about how different generations have different takes on self-love and like social media and what, how that's changed our image of ourselves.
1: Okay, well, I think it's set to be a very interesting discussion. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcast, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
2: Now it's time to welcome Simon Blackburn to Philosophy for Our Times.
3: First of all, I'd like to say something about how the book came to have its title, Mirror, Mirror, that's called. Its original title, the title I wrote it under, um, was Because You're Worth It. Um, (laughs) And it was stimulated by that uh, famous advertising slogan of L'Oréal, the very useful French firm which makes things that everybody needs. Um, And um, The way the the advertising campaign stimulated the book was it got me thinking, why do I hate that campaign slogan so much? Um, Every time I saw it, and it was very common, certainly eight or nine years ago, I felt this sort of rising tide of visceral anger and frustration and hatred for the modern world. And um, of course, I was getting old at the time, but still. And 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 that puzzled me. I was puzzled by my own reactions. Why did I take against it with this kind of, as I say, sort of visceral horror? And so I started to think about that. And as I thought about it, I started to deal with the emotions of self-love. And um, I found the landscape was much more complicated than I'd ever imagined it to be. So if we think of some of the words which get thrown about, um, we might think of narcissism, conceit, uh, vanity, pride, self-esteem, all of those are used, I think, largely interchangeably by many people. But in fact, I think there are differences. Uh, One difference I was alerted to uh, by my friend Anthony Grayling, we were talking about his New College of the Humanities, now deceased, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And uh, he knew Freddie Eyre. Freddie Eyre was one of his teachers. Um, Freddie Eyre was a famous philosopher, for those of you who are very young, who um, appeared on the Brain's Trust and things. And um, Freddie said said to Anthony one day, you know, Anthony, people say that I'm vain, and it's quite true, but I'm not conceited. And that's, you know, that's sort of paradoxical, isn't it? What's the, what's the contrast he would got in mind? Well, I think one contrast, I'm not sure it's the one he had in mind, but a contrast I would make is something like this, that if you're conceited, you're on the way to narcissism, you're on the way to taking no notice of other people. Um, that is, you sail through life self-sufficiently you don't see the need to take advice from other people. You don't see, neither, even see the need to debate your ideas with other people. You're, as it were, happy in your own skin or in your own brain. And um, that's a, an affliction, I think, because many people who are conceited are for that very reason, they're not conversable. They're not used to, to having their ideas challenged. They don't hear challenges. And Freddie wasn't like that. But Freddie was vain. Now what does vain mean? Well, I think it comes in various flavors. Um, But one thing that I think is characteristic of vanity is a greed. It's a greed for applause. You want the admiration of other people and you want it too much. I think we all like the admiration of other people. You like it when people say, oh, well done that was a jolly good show, so on and so on, um, you, you, um, you, you feel a little glow of pride. Um, and a vain person doesn't really care whether he deserved the applause, as long as he gets the applause, or she. I use pronouns interchangeably, I'm very modern like that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, as long as you get the applause, you, you, uh, you feel you've, you've won something, Um, and of course, like any desire, it can get out of hand, it can turn into a lust, uh, a lust for self-esteem for from other people. Um, Seems to me characteristic of one form of vanity. Funnily enough, I think at the other end of the scale, there's a slightly different form of vanity, which approaches conceit. I've already said about conceit, that it's a kind of indifference to the views of other people. And there is a kind of vanity which is probably illustrated by, as it were, the the characteristic look of a model on a catwalk. If you think of the characteristic looks of models on catwalks, they don't smile at you. They don't take any notice of you. They sort of stride along, looking very, very pleased with themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a, an exercise of vanity. Uh, And the interesting thing is that it's quite attractive. These two, it sells clothes. So why do we find that attractive? Because in real life, it's not at all attractive. If somebody's got their nose stuck in the air and they take no notice of you, um, it's demeaning to you, which is unpleasant. It's a kind of little dig or insult to your own self-esteem, which is very unpleasant. So why is it usable to sell clothes? And in fact, why did L'Oreal's advertisement work so well? It sold perfumes and other tat. So why does just being told you're worth it have, have this sort of magnetic effect on people? So I began to think that there's mysteries here. Narcissism, I think, is the the, the far end of conceit. Um, in the Greek myth, Narcissus was solitary. He lived alone in the countryside where he tended to sheep. He was a shepherd boy. And his only sort of human contact, or semi-human contact, was the nymph Echo. And um, Narcissus heard the words of Echo. But of course, Echo does nothing but repeat the words he says. So in this case, Echo was repeating to Narcissus his own words. And that's quite, you know, it's it's an insight into a certain aspect of our natures. Um, It's easy and sometimes quite pleasant to rehearse in our mind's eye the words we imagine other people to be using about us. Um, I mean, people obviously say me that I'm you know, frightfully good lecturer, ter- ter- terribly intelligent, uh, you know, distinguished career, um, <laughs> sells lots of books. <laughs> um, <coughs> at least if I tell myself that that's true, it's rather pleasant for a while. Um, and words I don't use about myself include, well, you can all guess. Um, <laughs> fat, aged, ugly, past his prime. (laughs) Pity pity we didn't hear him 30 years earlier. (laughs) Um, So in the myth, of course, Narcissus only hears Echo, and you imagine he only hears Echo saying nice things about him. And of course, he falls in love more directly, visually, because he sees his own image reflected in a pool of water and this obsesses him so much that he fades away, dies, and, um, and leaves behind no body. Um, narcissus was always, as it were, incorporeal. He wasn't really a person, really a person amongst others because to be a person is to find yourself as a person amongst other persons. So, so there was something telling Greek myths often have this amazing kick in them, they, they, the, um, the detail that somehow counts. And I think this detail of Narcissus, he turned into the flower, the Narcissus daffodil, or the um, um, Narcissus tribe flowers. So, so that was the alternative for him. Um, and I think the myth tells us that uh, that kind of obsessive self-esteem or obsessive love of yourself, obsessive self-concern, is eventually killing. It not only kills you, but it leaves you, as it were, without effect on the rest of people, on the other people around you. So in a sense, it's self-nullifying, because you're in love with yourself, but your love of yourself prevents you being a person amongst other people, and it prevents you having any kind of real legacy. So here we've got narcissism, conceit, and vanity. Uh, let me return to vanity, the two different poles. The pole when it's quite near to conceit, and the pole when it's far away from conceit, when it's a, a, a greed for the admiration of other people. As I say, that when, when it goes to being greed for the admiration of other people, it's something that we can all recognize. We all like it, as I said earlier. Um, when people can be heard to be saying good things about us. That's nice. Or uh, to applauding our performances. That's nice, too. Um, But it can be overdone, obviously. If it's under control, it probably amounts to self-esteem. And this is the penultimate uh, aspect of people I'd like to talk about. Self-esteem has been described, it's described by Milton, as second only to faith, as a good thing, as a virtue. It's, that's slightly surprising, because in the Christian tradition anyhow, because pride is the worst of the seven deadly sins. It's the fount from which all the others spring. So the Christian tradition is very down on pride, and you might think that pride and self-esteem are close cousins. But here's Milton, who's a very good Christian, telling us that self-esteem is noble, it's a good thing. And you can see again what he means. It's your self-esteem which is appealed to when the um, schoolmaster says, you've let me down, you've let the school down, but worst of all, you've let yourself down, and the poor chastened school The pupil goes away feeling lousy about himself and vows to reform. They don't reform, but they vow to reform. (laughs) Um, So you've let yourself down. Self-esteem is the, the attitude towards the self which prevents you letting yourself down. It would stop me, for example, from, if I felt like the need to urinate, it would stop me from urinating in front of you. I feel I'd like let myself down if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> as well as losing my audience. Um, so self-esteem is, I think what Milton's getting at, is that self-esteem is the, the aspect of your image of yourself which prevents you from letting yourself down, from becoming a, a laughing stock, or um, doing something so conspicuously silly or bad, or i um, unworthy. That you're going to lose face. You're going to lose credibility, in the eyes of other people. And put like that, self-esteem is necessary. It keeps us on the straight and narrow, or nearly on the straight and narrow. Like makes us like to appear to be on the straight and narrow, um, and that's at least halfway to being a good person. What about pride? If self-esteem is quite good. What about pride? Well, pride too, like self-esteem, has its good sides and its bad sides. This is a very Aristotelian talk. As some of you may know, Aristotle thought that virtue always lies in between, it's the, the mean, the middle between two extremes. Well, I think pride, proper pride, is like self-esteem, the pride of a craftsman in a job well done or the pride of a musician in a piece well played, that's proper pride, and it's a good thing. You're allowed, you're allowed to be pleased with yourself if you've done something especially well. Um, Pride is being pleased with yourself, is taking pleasure in your achievements, and if those achievements are genuine achievements, then well and good, there's nothing wrong, but of course, What did the Christians mean then when they made pride the root of all evil? Well, I think they were after a sort of rather different facet of pride, or if you like, a different kind of um, concentration of it, when you're you're going to be pleased with what you've done regardless of whether it was any good. Um, Pride here is, of course, returning full circle, closely allied to conceit and closely allied to narcissism, um, because you're, if you're se- your self-love, as it were, it, it immunizes you against the criticism of others, or immunizes you against seeing your own work or your own performance as less than brilliant, then it's stopping you from learning, from achieving better, from doing better, from uh, from being aware of where improvement is perhaps needed and uh, is, could be asked for. So again, like so many of these things, like vanity, I said it had two poles. There was the nose in the air, indifference to other people. But then on the other end, there's a greed for the admiration of other people. Pride, at one end, at the bad end, it's becoming conceit, or narcissism, it's an indifference to other people. Um, At the good end, it's an awareness of the values of what you've done, and and the uh, taking pride in work well done is proper pride, and proper pride is perfectly okay. Even the Christians couldn't call that a fount of all vice. So those emotions are quite tricky to place. One of the um, people who dissected or tried to dissect all this was uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher in the 18th century. Uh, Rousseau's analysis famously opposed two kinds of love or amour. There's amour de soi, which is usually translated love of yourself. Um, but it's more like a concern for self-preservation or uh, looking after yourself. which might include, for example, tilling your fields or um, getting in the harvest, all sorts of things like that. And that's perfectly okay, cultivating your garden, that's fine. But the, uh, the bad side is am- uh, amour prop. Amour prop is essentially comparative. It's looking at yourself in comparison to other people, and being anxious to surpass them. So you're concerned that you're not being given your due, that you're not being given your, your proper amount of love or deference, or not, not looked at properly by other people. I think there's the difference, I mean, although Rousseau makes it sound like a binary difference, one good, the other bad, I think, again, you can see gray areas, ways in which they can shade into each other. If, for example, at work, you find you're not being paid as much as the guy next door who's doing exactly the same job, the, the plight that a lot of women find themselves in, would it be amour de soi, concerned for your own, as it were, life, um, which is good, or would it be amour propre, concern to judge yourself uh, um, as valued less or more than other people? I don't know. I don't know what answer Rousseau would have given. But again, it seems to me that this illustrates the difficulty in these areas of thinking in binary terms. A lot of these terms shade, shade into one another. They shade into their opposite. So we've got to be very careful about them. So, the, so, if you're a, a selfie addict, I am not the right kind of moralist to, to call you out, to diss you, as we say, but don't overdo it. <laughs> um, that's, that's the, the, the take home message of all these exercises. One or two examples, or some examples which I give in my book are, I think, pretty frightening of the way in which our own positions blind us to those of others. Because really what we're always talking about in this area is the fact that um, we're social animals, we need to live with each other, and if we don't, or if we have traits of character or, uh, which, as a well, prevent us living with each other, each other properly, um, make us greedy for more than our share, make us more pleased with ourselves than we ought to be, um, blind us to our own faults, and so on, then those are, as it were, ruptures in our relationships with other people. And those ruptures are inimical to social life, and there's something which we ought to be concerned about. So I think that's the take home moralistic message. But I think it allows you to take a selfie or two. What it shouldn't allow you to do is to stand in front of the Mona Lisa and obscure it and take your selfie. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's a not a proper exercise of self concern, self concern or self esteem. That's, a, that's the outcome of a lust for it and much to be avoided. Well, that's my little um, diagnosis of some of the things in this area. Of course, full-blown narcissism I haven't talked much about. I gave you the Greek myth. I think that there's a lot of truth in it A full-blown narcissist, like, say, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. As I say, they, su- they suffer from an excess of conceit. And that, did, that actually disqualifies them from any sensible relationship to, with other people. This is why I think most people find poor Carrie Johnson quite amazing. I mean, how does she put up with it? And I, I, I hesitate to speculate about that, but it, the question has crossed my mind. So there we are.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
1: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that.